Thank you for listening to another Hastings NAS podcast. We are so pleased that you have shown interest in listening to this podcast, and we pray that it is edifying and beneficial for you. You can watch us live every Sunday morning on Facebook, facebook.com slash Hastings NAS. Uh, and if you are so inclined, you can support the ministries of the church by going to hastingsnaz.org slash give. Hope you enjoy this sermon. Grace and peace. We're going to continue in our, uh, our Easter series called Genuine Christianity. I don't, I don't know about you, I've enjoyed doing this. I hope this has been a meaningful time for the church as well, but I've really enjoyed going through the, the, the New Testament letter, 1 John. And so we're going to continue in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 24. And I want to invite you to really listen carefully. There's a lot packed into these verses. They're just... Just a few verses, there's a lot packed in, and I want you to listen to these words. We know love by this, that he that is Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And by this we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God and we receive from him whatever we ask because we obey his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we should believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. All who obey his commandments abide in him, and he abides in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit that he has given us. This is the written word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Church, can I be a little, uh, I don't know, Frank, I don't know if that's the right word. Can I be a little transparent this morning with you? Um, maybe you know this, maybe it's something that you can sense, maybe it's something that you've sensed over the, over the last year, or maybe it's brand new information, but can I just be a little vulnerable today? Uh, maybe this new, this isn't news, maybe this is not unique to me. Maybe we've all felt it in some way, uh, over the course of the last year, but I don't know about you, but this last year was really hard for me. This last year was really hard on me. I'm positive I have a lot more gray hair in April 2021 than I did in April 2020. We're now more than a year into the pandemic, after the pandemic pandemic began, and it's not over. Um, at, and this time, a little a little over a year since the panic began, has been it's been really tough. Not least because I love lost a whole lot of sleep. I have a one year old daughter. I've lost a lot of sleep. I mean, this year has been so good and beautiful because our family has grown and we've got this, this great little life that we celebrate, but it's also been really difficult. Um, there's been a deeper kind of, a deeper, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, unrest for me. And maybe, and maybe I don't know, maybe this is uh, not something a, a pastor shares with their congregation, but there have been some deep insecurities that have crept into my heart this year. And I want to be able to be honest with you. I, 
I've had some insecurities that I've struggled with this year. And I spoke with, with our accountant, our church accountant this week, and, and she said, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you've done it this year. Anyone in leadership, I have so much sympathy for anyone who's in a position of leadership this last year because you're going to make people upset no matter what. She said, in this year, any, you, any decision you make, you cannot be a people pleaser during a pandemic. And she's right. When the, when the pandemic began, began, I knew that we as a church were going to have to make some hard decisions. And we did make hard decisions. The church board really worked hard this year. I knew that no matter what decision we made, there were people who are going to be frustrated or disappointed. Early on, I said that this pandemic would be revelatory. I said this pandemic may change some things, but I think first and foremost, it's going to reveal some things. It will reveal allegiances. It will reveal commitments. It will reveal priorities, and it's going to reveal insecurities, and I was not ready for it to reveal my own insecurities that crept its way into my vocation. Thoughts and feelings that crept into my mind were like, what am I even doing? Oh gosh, have we made the right decision? Did we do the right thing? Do I even belong in the pastorate? These questions and many more found their way into my heart and my mind. Who am I? Who am I that I, that I should pastor these people? A strong sense of unworthiness. A strong feeling of, well, maybe I'm not cut out for this after all. Shoot, if attendance is an important metric, and here's a hint, it shouldn't be. If, if attendance was an important metric, well, then I was absolutely a failure, and have been. We were approaching about 120 in weekly worship before the pandemic began. You were hard-pressed to find a seat in here 16 months ago. We were talking about going to two services because we were afraid we were going to pack this place too much. And today I'm thrilled if we hit 50 in this room. The critic in me says that, that, uh, that the reason our numbers are now 50 rather than what they were at 110 or so is because I'm a failure of a pastor. Maybe that's evidence that I'm really poor at this gig. And I don't, I, now I, I don't bring this up because I'm searching for sympathy. I'm not. I'm not. I know that this is part of the human experience. I know that we all deal with these insecurities and these creeping untruths at times, but it just felt very acute this year for me. And it was just a few weeks ago that I was talking to Kayla. It was actually the week, uh, it was Holy Week. I remember it was Holy Week, and I was talking to Kayla about a lot of this. We were talking about all of this and and this, I don't know, the perceived sense of failure, and we were really talking about kind of worst-case scenarios really kind of, uh, I don't know, it was a, a moment where I was just kind of really feeling it and really wrestling with like, oh, what is, what, what am I even doing? And there was a moment of clarity as I was processing out loud with Kayla. I'm an extrovert. I think out loud. Um, and so I, I don't know something until, I don't know that I know anything or feel something until I can verbalize it. So Kayla and I were, I remember I was in the kitchen when we were talking about this and, and I was processing with Kayla and I said, well, what's the worst that could happen? What's the worst that could happen to me, to us, because of this pandemic, because of the difficult situations we found ourselves in? What's the worst? 
And it was a moment of, yes, acknowledge that you're feeling inadequate or unworthy or incomplete. Yes, you can acknowledge that, but, but recognize the truth, Danny. Yes, you have these thoughts and feelings, but are they true? But are they accurate? What is the truth? And it was in talking to my wife through this conversation that, that it was clear that the truth was, I had been called to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. The truth is that that calling is more true than the nagging insecurities I was telling myself. The truth was that I wasn't called to make decisions that would keep people in the pews. I was called, I am called to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. I wasn't called to build the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. The truth was that I was called to love God's people, to serve the church, and that any growth that would take place would grow because Christ said, I will do that work. You remain faithful to the call that you have on your life. These nagging insecurities had made their way into my mind, into my heart. And then after this really important conversation with Kayla, the question I was left with was, what then do I do now? How then do I live my life in light of this truth, even though my mind and my heart are telling me untruths? You see, I can say now, in light of our reading today, that my heart had condemned me. This is a phrase that shows up twice in our reading today, in 1 John 3, 16 through 24. When we read this passage, did that phrase stand out to you? Did that phrase uh, stick out to you? Uh, I remember when, when I was talking, uh, this week, I was talking to Kayla about this passage, and I read it, and we were kind of talking about what it means, and she said, yeah, that phrase really kind of jumped out to me as I was listening to you read that. Did you wonder what it meant when I read the passage, whenever your heart condemns you? Here's, here's what it says, and by this we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. And this is the phrase that I think we need to focus on, when our hearts condemn us, or maybe when our hearts attack us. Has your heart ever condemned you? Have you ever had a heart attack? Maybe not literally, but do you know what that means? I was looking up the message's paraphrase of this. The message, is, uh, ha- the message has a great paraphrase of this little section that I want to read. Uh, it reads, My dear children, let us not talk about love. Let's practice real love. This is the only way we'll know we are living truly living in God's reality. It is also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there is something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts and knows more about us than we do ourselves. The self-condemnation of our own hearts is this debilitating self-criticism. So let me ask you, church, who's your worst critic? I can almost guarantee you that your worst critic is yourself. Have you ever left a conversation or like a a situation with others where you've said or done something stupid and you just can't stop thinking about it? You leave a a conversation or maybe a time with family or friends and and you're, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that. I was an idiot. 
and you just can't stop thinking about it, right? Maybe even years later. Does that ever happen? Every once in a while, there will be a memory of something really dumb I've done, or maybe dozens of memories of really dumb things I've done over my life. Embarrassing things I did years ago, and I look back on it and I think, oh, I'm kind of embarrassed for that thing that I did 12 years ago with them. Wow, you're an idiot. Why did you do that? And I get embarrassed about something I did like a decade ago. And I'm alone, like, and I still get embarrassed about it. Do you know how often they think about that stupid thing you did? Never. They don't even remember the conversation. But I think about it. I remember when I was an idiot. We are our own worst critics. The truth is, church, our hearts can condemn us. The word for heart here is cardia in Greek. This should make sense. You go see the cardiologist, a cardiac arrest. This is the word, and in Greek, it's more than just the seat of emotion in our soul, in our psyche. It's where, uh, it's where thought was generated as well. So when the writers of the New Testament write about your heart, it is the seat of thought and emotion. Those were not disconnected. So this is the, 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 the elder, the writer, is writing about our thoughts and our emotions together here when, when they say your hearts condemn you or this debilitating self-criticism. Our thoughts and our feelings, as valid as they are, are not always true. Have you ever found yourself crippled by self-doubt or by self-criticism? Have you ever thought, man, I'm just, I'm just not worthy. I'm just not enough. Why would I even put more of myself into this thing? I'm just, I'm, I'm pretty worthless. I'm, I'm not worthy of love or affection. I, I don't deserve to belong. This is that debilitating self-criticism. Brene Brown is, is just an incredible human being, an incredible author. Read everything she writes. But she wrote, those who feel lovable, who love, those who experience belonging, simply believe they are worthy of love and belonging. She did all of this research to determine how people feel a sense of love and belonging, and it all boiled down to this. She called it wholeheartedness. Those who had the sense of wholeheartedness simply believed that they were worthy of love and belonging. This sense of love and belonging is, is what she calls living wholeheartedly. But sometimes our hearts tell us we're not worthy of love and belonging. I can't belong to them. I don't fit in. The truth, church, is that our thoughts and our feelings are not always true, and they're not always great either. And this is, how, this is why the writer, the author, continues and says, God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. God is greater than your hearts and knows more about you than you do. That's how the message paraphrases it. Your heart might lie to you. Your mind may deceive yourself. But do you know who will not? God is greater than your heart. And God is greater than the stories that you tell yourself. You ever spin a yarn in your own head? trying to guess what they're thinking, guess how they're, what their reaction means, and so you start telling yourself a story, and most of the time it's, it, you're catastrophizing, and you're telling yourself it's the worst possible scenario. They did this intentionally because they don't like me. 
Your heart might lie to you. Your mind may deceive you. But God is greater and knows you better than yourself. And this is a word of comfort to a suffering church, to a suffering congregation that feels vulnerable, a people who are susceptible to their hearts attacking them, their thoughts and their feelings debilitating them and their work. And this is why the elder writes so much in these verses about love and about abiding. Did you notice how frequently those two words showed up in these verses? Multiple times, the elder writes about love. And he tells this congregation, you are God's beloved. And he writes to them that God abides with you and you abide with God. Belovedness, abiding, when our hearts attack us. What's the truth? When we feel this self-criticism, this self-doubt, what's the truth? The truth is that you are God's beloved. The truth is that God abides. Isn't that good news? And as God's beloved, we know we're worthy of love. As God abides with us, we know we're worthy of belonging. Let me tell you, church, if God believes you're worthy of love and belonging, maybe we ought to as well. If God sees you as God's beloved, and if God says, hey, you're worthy of my belonging with you, I, ab- I abide with you, then who are we to lie to ourselves when we say we're not? God is greater than our hearts, even when our hearts attack us. And if God calls us beloved, and if God abides with us, if that is the truth, if God can be trusted, maybe it's okay for us to believe we're worthy of love and belonging as well. Maybe we shouldn't always listen to our hearts and our heads when they fill us with crippling self-doubt. There's just one problem, though, isn't there, church? How do you get out of your own head? No, seriously, like, can you tell me? When you find yourself with crippling self-doubt, when you're really struggling with self-criticism, it's really hard to get out of your own head sometimes, isn't it? It's really hard to just, like, stop thinking these negative thoughts. When you're spiraling in self-doubt and self-criticism, what do you do? How do you break the cycle? When you're struggling with knowing that you are beloved, when you're struggling to know that you belong, what's your response? Use your phone, a friend. <laughs> Believe it or not, I, First John tells us, I think, the remedy here. I think it's in these verses, and I think it's really clear. And the remedy, apparently, is not too dissimilar from how you remedy a, an actual heart attack. An actual heart attack. What's the remedy for a heart attack other than bypass surgery? Sometimes that surgery is necessary, right? You open things up and you, you fiddle with your valves. It's pretty incredible what they can do. But what's the most simple remedy for a heart attack? For a heart that's not pumping blood like it ought? Physical activity. That's, that's what most doctors say, right? 
in order to prevent another heart attack, in order to prevent cardiac arrest, keep moving. Go for a walk. Be physically active. It seems then, according to 1 John, that the remedy for spiritual heart attacks is kind of similar. The elder writes, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. Let's not merely talk about love. Let's put it into practice. Let us love with our acts, not merely with our mouth, not merely with an updated Facebook profile picture, as if that changes the world, but with our hands and our feet. Let us do loving things with and for other people. This is why the elder can write, How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? I can't help but think of James, the book of James. Who of you, when you see a brother or sister in need, you say, Go, be warm, be well fed, but do nothing about it? How is that helping? I kind of feel like the elder is, is, is saying, enough with your thoughts and prayers. How about using your hands and feet? How often after there's a, a crisis, after yet another mass shooting, after, after another natural disaster, do, do, does the church offer thoughts and prayers? It's kind of like, like the author is saying, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action, in deeds and how you live your life. I remember when I was in college going down to uh, Louisiana, went to New Orleans, and helped, helped a single man rebuild his home after the hurricane. This was about three years after Hurricane Katrina. And this man said, man, I wish they had just let every church come down. Because the church is making a difference here. The church is loving us. How often, church, do we offer thoughts and prayers, but don't offer our hands or our feet, our mouths or our bodies? Apparently, love is lived. Love is a verb. Love is an action. And it's kind of counterintuitive that the remedy for a clogged heart is more activity, right? Does that make sense? Your heart's not pumping great, so what's the remedy? Well, you got to make it pump a little bit more. Struggling with that? Well, you got to do it more. The prescription is to do more of it. Could that also be the remedy for spiritual heart attacks? More activity? Better activity? By this. The elder writes, by this, and that this is loving and truth in action, we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts when they condemn us. By this, loving others in action and truth, you will know that you're from the truth and you will reassure your self-debilitating heart. Our hearts then are reassured of their worth, of their belonging, by loving others. We then regain our own sense of love and belonging by showing other people that, that they're worthy of love and belonging. 
Church, has your heart been attacking you lately? Have you felt self-doubt in a debilitating way that prevents you from work, from activities, from loving others well? Well, what about us, church, collectively? The author wrote this to a church, to a believing body. Can communities... Can communities, can congregations have the sense that they're incomplete or that they're not worthy or that they don't belong or that others shouldn't belong with them? Can that be a collective heart attack? What's the remedy for our own and maybe our corporate heart attacks? This lack of wholeheartedness. Well, apparently to love others in truth and action. So, let's do it. Who needs to be reminded that they are God's beloved? Who in your world needs to be reminded that they are God's beloved? Church, do you know how often we begin reading the Bible with Genesis chapter 3? rather than Genesis chapter 1? Do you know the difference there? Do you know what happens in Genesis chapter 3? In Genesis chapter 3, we read about the fall of humanity. Very often, that's where we begin to define other people, isn't it? You are a sinner, broken. We are going to remind you just how sinful you are. The Bible doesn't begin with Genesis chapter 3, church. It begins with Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, God says, look at this. It is so good. Original blessing is more original than original sin. Who in your life needs to be reminded that they are God's beloved? Who needs to be reminded that God is on their side, that God abides with them? And how do we show them that? How do we love them? How do we serve them? This could be the very remedy for our own debilitating self-criticism as well as their path towards life. So church, let's go love some people. Amen? He is risen.